For it is by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 Welcome to Grace Bond Ministries.
talking for a while about starting a sermon series on Ruth, <laughs> and we're kind of going to start today. Uh, but to understand Ruth, you got to understand Judges first, so uh, we're going to start look at, by looking at the first verse of Ruth. So Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and then we're going to look back at Numbers, and then we're going to uh, go through the first couple of chapters of Judges. So... So Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 is where we're going to start. Uh, so the sermon series, we're going to go through Ruth. We're going to go verse by verse. I'm going to try to split it off into sections. Uh, I have a couple of different sermons uh, ready for, or prepared at least. The outline prepared for, Roman, I mean, for Ruth 1. And so we're going to spend a little bit more time in Ruth 1 than we do the other chapters. And then once we get 2, 3, and 4, it'll be uh, two sermons each. Split the chapters in half, basically. But it seems like, to me, you know, when you, especially when you're studying a whole book or anything like that, you've got to get that overall meaning. Because somewhere, whoever wrote this book of Ruth, we don't really know who wrote it. Uh, you know, it's named after the character. Ruth didn't write it, probably. Uh, well, it's for sure Ruth didn't write it. But one of the key things to figure out the one point, the main theme. So with the Old Testament books, there's a couple of different things you've got to keep in mind. It's got to... You got to know what, what, why is it in there in this historical way? Why was it canonized in this way? So basically, why does it come right after Judges? Which seems pretty obvious with verse one. It's because it happened in the time of the Judges. And you got to know, you know, how does it fit into the overall history of the Old Testament of the Israelites? And then how does all this point us to Jesus? Uh, the genealogy at the end of Ruth really is pretty clear why it points to Jesus and how it points to Jesus, <laughs> because Ruth was part of the lineage that's recorded in Matthew. It leads up to, uh, to Jesus. But throughout all of these books, though, though, you can find different applications. So there's a lot of different things we can learn. There's a lot of different things we could model or change or do differently in our own personal lives. To live more godly lives, to live obedient lives. But I'm going to focus on this one main application. And that's to always have faith in God. And I think this is pretty clear. Throughout all of Ruth, this, this call, this motivation to always have faith in God. Faith being trust. Trust. And it seems like through Ruth, you kind of see three different circumstances, which really covers all the circumstances that we're going to have to face. There is a part of Ruth where they have absolutely nothing. <laughs> they have left Israel. They went to Moab. They lost their, she, Naomi, Naomi lost her husband, and then her, she lost her sons. And so their wives lost their husbands as well. They're in a famine. It's just, it's just a bad time. We'll get to all that uh, next week. 
But so at the beginning of it, it's a time where they have absolutely nothing. In Naomi, for kind of a brief few years there, about 10 years really, is what it says, turned away from God, turned away from Israel. Then she learns how to have faith in God again. So in Ruth chapter 1, we kind of see this faith when we have absolutely nothing, it seems like. So how to have faith when we have, when we have nothing. Then in Ruth 2 and 3, things start to turn around a little bit. They finally get back to Israel. They meet Boaz. And all of that story happens there. So then you start, there's this other circumstance where it's like, you know, we still need to have faith in God. But there are a few things that seem to be going our way. There are a few things that God seems to be doing that are going our way. So it's faith when some good things start to happen, but everything wasn't perfect at this point. There was still still no kinsman redeemer for Naomi's family. And then in Ruth 4, at the the end of all this, consummation of Ruth, uh, at the conclusion of Ruth, you finally get to this point where it seems like they have it all. (laughs) Everything they desired and uh, wanted and needed comes to pass by the end of Ruth 4. And so in our lives, we'll talk about how to have faith. It's probably the easiest time to have faith, right? (laughs) When we seem to have everything that we could possibly need or want. But today, like I said, we're going to go back and we're going to look at Judges. Because read uh, Ruth 1.1 with me. It says, during the time of the Judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. So we've got to go back and look at the time of Judges, because it says it takes place during the time of Judges. We don't know exactly when. I think some people say it happened somewhere around chapter 10 of Judges, something like that. But we really don't know exactly when. But we do know it happens during the time of the Judges. So we've got to go back and figure out what does this time of the Judges look like. And that's what we're going to do today. And really, the entire book of Judges is summed up. As I was studying this, I'm like, okay, now which verses am I going to flip through throughout the whole book of, Roman, of Judges? But it's really summed up in the first three chapters. First two and a part of chapter three. So what was the time of the judges like? It's actually a very, very dark period during Israel's history. Where they, there's this constant phrase throughout Judges. It says, they did, they did what was right in their own eyes. Which basically was idolatry during that time. So basically what happens throughout the whole book of Judges, this constant cycle of these things. So at the beginning, they were beginning to take control over the rest of Israel. You know, Joshua helped them get most of Israel. There were still other parts to get. But Joshua's death seems to begin this, this turn from God, this sinful, idolatrous, spiritual decline in Israel. And it all roots, as we're about to see, it all roots from them not wiping out the Canaanites like they, like they were commanded to do. So many of the Canaanites survived. As the term that given to the people of Canaan of the land. Many of the Canaanites survive. And then at the same time that they survive, though, Israel begins to be established. But they get established with the Canaanites that are already there. And then they begin this repetitive process of, you know, it first started out with them not wiping out all the Canaanites. And then it starts getting into them committing idolatry by Worshipping the gods of these Canaanites. And then when they uh, commit idolatry, God's wrath comes down upon them, basically, in a natural way. Not a supernatural way, just a natural way, it seems like. You know, God controls the natural and the supernatural, amen? 
But in this natural way where basically he lets these people take over Israel. He takes away the power that Israel had to take over these people. They take over and they make the Israelites their slaves for the most part. And then during that time, they're, they're in this kind of suffering period. They're in this enslavement period, enslavement period for a few years. They cry out to God for help. And then God shows grace. Now, a lot of times, though, as you see through judges, that the one of the main problems is they cry out to God for help, but they don't ask for a repentance. They don't repent of the things that they did. But either way, though, God decides to give them grace. He decides to, he decides to give them grace by God raising up these judges. And we probably know a few of them. Gideon, Samson, uh, Ehud, one of my favorite. He raised up these judges who lead the Israelites back into this time of peace. But the problem is the same process happens over and over and over again throughout the entire book of Judges. And it seems like their spirituality seems to get worse and worse and worse as you go through Judges. Not necessarily every single time, but you kind of see it throughout the whole book. At the beginning, it's just, it's just, you know, just idolatry, then worshiping other gods, then stopping worshiping other gods, and it gets worse. And at the very end, at the very end, the Israelites had a commentator writer, he believes that, that and I kind of agree with him after studying Judges, that throughout Judges, it's like this canonization of Israel, where they start becoming just like the Canaanites. Because at the end of Judges, they hit the very tip top where they act just like the Canaanites. They turn on each other. They're killing each other. One of the worst stories in Judges, one of the worst stories in Judges was the guy, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but the guy who uh, he was fleeing with his concubine and they were going through the area and they decided not to stop with the people who weren't the Israelites. They decided to keep going. He decided to keep going until he got to the Israelite town. But they would actually have been safer in the Canaanite town at that point. Because they go to the Israelite town, and then these group of men, they come up. They actually want to rape him. These homosexual men want to rape him, and they say, no, take the woman instead. And so they take the woman, and probably five, six, you know, we don't know, I don't forget how many guys are exactly there, but they rape this woman, and then she, she dies on the footstep of that house. <laughs> this was all done by the Israelites. And so you see this canonization. You see this, them growing to just be just like the Canaanites throughout this story. In the story of Ruth, the story of hope, really, <laughs> happens somewhere during this time of the Judges. Happens somewhere during that time, this chaotic and sinful time. So like I said, let's take a brief stroll through Judges. Turn with me to Numbers 33 first. Numbers 33. And you kind of see this all throughout the uh, Moses' writings and Joshua and things like that about how they are to deal with the Canaanites who were in their land. But Numbers 33, starting at verse 50. So we're going to look through Judges. We're going to start here because this, has to, this tells us why, uh, what happened, why the Israelites were being punished for what they did, things like that. But we're going to go through Judges, and we're going to see the necessity of God's mercy and grace that applied to the time of the Judges and that applies to us today. So Numbers 33, starting at verse 50, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Tell the Israelites when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you must drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you destroy all of their stone images and cast, excuse me, and cast images and demolish all their high places. You are to take possession of the land and settle in it. 
because I have given you the land to possess. You are to receive the land as an inheritance by lot, according to your clans. Increase the inheritance for a large clan and decrease it for a small one. Whatever place the lot indicates for someone will be his. You will receive an inheritance according to your ancestral tribes. But if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, those you allow to remain will become barbs for your eyes and thorns for your sides. They will harass you in the land where you will live. And what I had planned to do to them, I will do to you. You know, people wonder all the time, and <laughs> they're like, how? You know, I, I hear this most of the time from atheists, and I think I've probably mentioned this before. But why would God, why would a loving God tell his people to go out there and wipe out all the nations? First of all, these were not the best nations in the whole wide world. <laughs> they were sacrificing kids to their false gods. And they were doing all kinds of bad things. And on top of that, Israel, if they were, did not wipe out the Canaanites, which they don't do, <laughs> spoiler alert, if they don't wipe out these Canaanites, then, like verses 55 and 56 say, those you allow to remain will become barred for your eyes and thorns for your sides. They will harass you in the land where you will live. And what I had planned to do to them, I will do to you. So they will become barbs and thorns. They will harass the Israelites. And the Lord will bring his wrath against Israel. So now let's look at Numbers. That's what they were told to do. <laughs> I mean, not Numbers, just, uh, Judges. Judges chapter 1. So that's what they were told to do. But in Judges, we see them not obeying God. So Judges 1.1 1, 1 says, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? So Joshua died, but there was still some land to conquer. Then verse 2, this conquering starts to take place. It says, the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have handed the land over to him. Judah said to his brother Simeon, come with me to my allotted territory and let us fight against the Canaanites. I will also go with you to your allotted territory. So Simeon went with him. When Judah attacked, the Lord handed the Canaanites and Perizzites over to them. They struck down 10,000 men to Bezek. They found Adonai, Bezek, and Bezek fought against him and struck down the Canaanites and Perizzites. When Adonai, Bezek fled, they pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai, Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I have done. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, put it to the sword, and set the city on fire. Afterward, the men of Judah marched down to fight against the Canaanites who were living in the hill country, the Negev, and the Judean foothills. Judah also marched against the Canaanites who were living in Hebron. Hebron was formerly named Kiriath Arba. They struck down Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there, they marched against the residents of Debir, Abir was formerly known as Kiriath Sefir. So this conquering begins to take place. And at this point, they're actually following what God told them to do. They're destroying these lands. They're success, successfully driving out all the people, burning down their cities. They did what they were told to do. Then there's a little story that takes place there. Uh, but skip, skip over to verse 17. It's another successful conquering. Judah went with his brother Simeon, struck the Canaanites who were living in Zephath, and completely destroyed the town. So they named the town Hormah, 
Judah captured Gaza and its territory, Ashkelon and its territory, and Ekron and its territory. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country. But they could not drive out the people who were living in the valley, because those people had iron chariots. Judah gave Hebron to Caleb, just as Moses had promised. Then Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak who lived there. So again, another successful conquering where they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to wipe out the inhabitants of the land. And it's not because God's just trying to just wipe out some innocent people. <laughs> he's trying to protect the Israelites. And he's trying to bring judgment upon the Canaanites for their sins that they committed in God's world that he created. But then, verse 21, we get to our first failure. It says, at the same time, the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. The Jebusites had lived among the Benjamites in Jerusalem to this day. So our first mention of a failure. Then there's some more uh, success stories. Starting in verse 22, the, the house of Joseph also attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. They sent spies to Bethel. The town was formerly named Luz, for love. She spies, the spies saw a man coming out of the town and said to him, Please show us how to get into town, and we will show you kindness. When he showed them the way into the town, they put the town to the sword, but released the man and his entire family. Then the man went to the land of Hittites, built a town, and named it Luz, love. That is its name still today. And then we get into a bunch of different failures, starting in verse 27. Failures or disobedient acts, more so. Verse 27, at that time, Manasseh failed to take possession of Beshian and Tanai and their surrounding villages, or the residents of Dor, Eblium, and Megiddo, and their surrounding villages. The Canaanites were determined to stay in this land. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor but never drove them out completely. At that, time of, at that time, Ephraim failed to drive out Canaanites who were living in Gezer. Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived among them in Gezer. Zebulon failed to drive out the residents of Ketron or the residents of Naalah. So the Canaanites lived among them and served as forced labor. Asher failed to drive out, drive out the residents of Akko or Sidon or, or Alab or Akzib, Helba, Afik or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land because they failed to drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Bethshemesh or the residents of Bethanah. They lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land, but the residents of Bethshemesh and Bethanah served as their forced labor. The Amorites forced the Danites into the hill country and did not allow them to go down into the valley. The Amorites were determined to stay in Har Haris. Ejlon and Shalabim. When the house of Joseph got the upper hand, the Amorites were made to serve as forced labor. The territory of the Amorites extended from the Scorpions' ascent, that is from Selah, upward. So there's just this constant. Here we get to all these failures of Israel where they did not obey what the Lord told them to do. And then, you know, we go back, remember back to Numbers we just read. <laughs> he told them exactly what was going to happen if they did not obey him. And so his wrath is brought upon Israel. And I think sometimes, though, we think of wrath, we think of God's chastisement, even on Christians. 
We think it's got to be this supernatural thing like where God has to bring a fireball down from heaven. <laughs> One of the clearest teachings that that's not always true is in Romans, where he talks about, where Paul talks about how the governing authorities bring, bring down God's judgment upon people. Remember that in Romans? So sometimes God's chastisement, sometimes God's judgment. And it's very clear throughout Judges. Sometimes it happens in a seemingly natural way. It's pretty interesting. But no matter what, God is still behind it all. Because God controls the supernatural and the natural. So we get to chapter 2, and now Israel is being condemned for their actions. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You are to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I now say I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named that place Bochum and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. So the, the Lord chastises them, convicts them of disobeying him. And then Joshua's death. He's discussed. It's almost like Joshua's death is like the turning point of Israel, the way it's worded and inserted. Uh, look at verse 6. Previously, when Joshua, Joshua had sent the people away, the Israelites had gone to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. Verse 7, when Joshua was in charge, when Joshua was leading, the people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. For they had seen all the Lord's great works that he had done for Israel. So when Joshua was leading, when Joshua was leading, the people obeyed God. The people obeyed God. They did what was right in the Lord's eyes, for the most part, of course. Because Joshua was a very godly man. But then, this shift happens. Look at verse 10. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They angered the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the Asherahs. They abandoned God. <laughs> Obviously, whoever wrote Judges was not very happy <laughs> with Israel after this time. Because obviously, Judges was written after all this stuff took place. And the writer's looking back and basically is just saying that don't be like this again, Israel. Don't be like this. Don't abandon the Lord for these false gods that people have created with their own hands. Worship the Lord. Worship Yahweh. Because He is the one and only true God. Then it gets a little clearer of how exactly 
uh, all of his wrath and anger goes against Israel. I mean, he, has, he had the right here. <laughs> like we were talking about in Sunday school. Just go ahead, wipe out the entire world. But he doesn't. He shows grace. <laughs> Even in his chastisement, he shows grace. A lot of people, you know, sometimes we think, man, why would God put me through this? You know, sometimes God tests us for trials. Sometimes God chastises us. Let certain things happen in our lives. We'll turn back to him. But in all that, he still shows grace. <laughs> still shows grace. Look at verse 14. We're still in chapter 2. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to the martyrs who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them, and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them, just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their martyrs. But they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned away, turned from the way of their fathers, who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their fathers did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers, following other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them. They did not turn away from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. So God responds. God is angry if they do this. Now on top of that, like I just mentioned, they go through all these judges. They cry out to God for help when they so desperately need it, but they don't repent. They don't repent. And so actually when these judges die, things get worse and worse and worse and worse. And if you don't believe me, go read the last three or four chapters of Judges. And then read, read a little bit of Joshua and then go read, read the last couple of chapters of Judges. And you'll see how much worse it just gets over time. Because they don't repent. So again, this process. This process goes from them leaving a time of peace after each of these, uh, after each of these judges come. So there's a, there's a time of peace. Various years. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty decent amount of time of peace. But it doesn't last. Because eventually they begin this process of, of worshiping idols. And then God brings his, lets his anger loose on them, brings wrath upon them by allowing their enemies to take them over. They cry out to the Lord, but don't repent. But he still raises up a judge out of his grace and mercy that will save them. But even the judge they don't listen to. And then eventually they go right back into idolatry after their time of peace. But even throughout the book of Judges, some of the judges themselves do Canaanite things. Like even Samson. A lot of people paint Samson in such a bright, shining light. But Samson did a lot of bad things himself. He broke the Nazarite vows time after time. Again. Along with many other things. So the, the book of Judges, this time of the Judges, was known as one of Israel's darkest spiritual times of history. So just looking at just the introduction to this book, isn't it obvious 
how much, how necessary it is for God's grace and mercy to take place for Israel. What about our lives? You know, before we become Christians, you know, you have those sin after sin after sin just piling up on your conscience. There's never a true peace about this sinful nature of yours. A lot of times people today like convince themselves that they're actually good people. But I'm not convinced that they're at peace about that. Then on top of that, even if you do sin, even if you do feel like you made a mistake and ask for forgiveness, sometimes people don't truly forgive you. A lot of non-Christians don't know what true forgiveness is like. (laughs) True love is like. Because a lot of people will say, I forgive you, but they really don't. (laughs) They really don't. Like that old saying, I forgive, but I don't forget. (laughs) Thank God that God doesn't do that. He forgives and forgets. Then you realize that there's more to it. You realize that you're not just sinning against man. When you sin, you sin against God. (laughs) Even if you sin against man, you're, you're sinning against the creation of God. You're sinning against a creation that was made in God's image. You realize that you desperately, you desperately need God's mercy. Then all of us in here, you know, at one point we got convicted of that. We asked God for his forgiveness. And the cool thing about it is that God is so ready to give us his forgiveness. And at that point, we're forgiven of all of our sins. And we have this new free conscience. (laughs) What we receive from that. And then we begin to show others the same love and forgiveness that we've received. But what about your life after you become a Christian? What about sins after we become a Christian? Think back to Israel. Think back to the judges. These were God's chosen people. These weren't some just random Canaanites he just picked up some one day. (laughs) They were chosen for a purpose. Just like they were chosen for a purpose. We are also grafted into this chosen purpose of God. Romans talks about. We are grafted in simply by faith in Christ Jesus. You want to receive a new heart, new way of living, new conscience, new way of looking at the world, new worldview. But then the obvious question is, well, do we still sin? (laughs) We're made the righteousness of God. We're made righteous. Do we still sin? And yes, we do, obviously. <laughs> I don't think any of us in here would say that we don't sin. First John chapter 1 says, if you say you have no sin, you call God a liar. Do we still need conviction? Do we still need times where we weep over the wrong that we've done against God? You bet. <laughs> you bet. Sometimes, you know, really with everything. <laughs> if you're going to fix something, it's got to be broken before you can fix it. Sometimes I think we can deal with sin and we can get through it pretty easily. <laughs> Sometimes we get so far into it, we're going to have to, God is really going to have to break us down before we finally turn away from that and turn back to God. So I would say we need to repent. We need to repent of our sins even after we become a Christian. We need to feel some guilt sometimes. We need to feel conviction. We need to feel despair. If that means we can live a better life for Christ Jesus. Which is God's chastisement, his discipline to help us live a godly life. 
And then when we're beat down, we're, we're feeling bad about these sins that we've done, even as Christians. We remember and we turn to God's grace and forgiveness every single time. And only by this conviction, only by his grace and forgiveness, are we able to completely turn away from those sins that we once held so dear in our lives. So even now as sinners, I mean, even now as Christians, we're still sinners. We still sin. We still fall short of the glory of God. But we desperately need his grace, his mercy, his guidance, his conviction. And the cool thing about it is, though, that grace and forgiveness and mercy and all that stuff, he's ready to give it. He's ready to give it to anyone who is searching for it. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this day, Lord. God, we thank you for this mercy, this grace, this forgiveness, all these things that we don't deserve, Lord. You give it to us anyway. We saw how you treated Israel during one of their darkest times. You still provided for them. You still showed pity for them. You still helped them out in their time of need. So God, I just pray that you convict us of any sins, any wrongs that we're doing. I just pray you convict us of that. Help us to turn away from that by whatever means necessary. But God, don't let us just dwell on those sins. Don't let us become or have a heart of just legalism where we're just following you so we can stay out of your wrath. But show us the importance of it. Show us how your ways are the loving ways and how we receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your discipline against us, before us. We pray that you just continue to do that by whatever means necessary. We open up our hearts to you, Lord, to just enter our lives and bring us closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Sin and left a crimson.
want to challenge all of y'all in here. And, uh, you know, Psalm 139, I believe, says uh, David, or somebody prays to God and says, God, search my heart, search my heart, and show me, uh, show me any ungodly things within me. Would you be willing to do that? <laughs> Pray to God and say, God, show me what I'm doing wrong. Show me what I'm doing wrong. Convict me of that. Turn from it. Some of the easiest ways I've gotten out of sins in my life is to pray about it and say, God, show me the sin. And when he shows you, he shows you. <laughs> Clear as day. Convicts you. And it shows you also his grace and forgiveness. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for your conviction. Lord, we know your conviction is nothing to run from, nothing to be afraid from. God, we thank you for chastisement. We thank you for discipline. Just like our parents have discipline of we know you discipline. But God has prayed that you convict us. Break the old problems if you have to. Or that we can live the best God of life. That we can be focused. We can focus on you. God, our daily